Hello, everyone. This is the report 28 of the Swine Disease Reporting System. My name is Daniel Linares with Iowa State. Hello, my name is Giovanni Trevisan with Iowa State. And we have a special guest here today, Dr. Emily Byers, joining us. She's uh, a member of the Swine Disease Reporting System uh, Advisory Group, and of course, is with the, the, the Presage um, Farms in North Carolina. Hi, Emily. Hello, thanks for having me. Glad to have you. And so we're gonna move on to the report as usual here, starting with the first page. Um, Giovanni, the take home of this page, as I understand, is that the overall detection of PERS uh, virus by PCR uh, in May is similar to which was observed in, uh, in, uh, in April. It's within the forecasted uh, parameters. And the only kind of thing to note here is that there was a slight increase in detection in winter market uh, animals, uh, right? Yeah, that's correct. There was this slight increase in winter market over all the months where uh, moved from 38% in April to 39% in May. But we did observe a slight increase in the first two weeks of May in our age categories, but then that turns to uh, lower down the detection for these age categories. And then it evened out at the end of the uh, month after those uh, first initial weeks of higher activity, right? That's correct. That's lowering down. And you, you also report here that the RFLP 184 moved from the third to the first uh, in, the list in, in the list of the most frequently detected compared to last year. Yeah, that's correct. And two things need to be uh, pointed out here. The first is that RFLP184, there is a association with a new vaccine that did enter in the market in the recent times. But additionally to that, we have the wild type strains that we are detecting more of those in the recent period. So we continue to monitor this RFLP type and is now the major one detected at ISU VDL. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Byers, w w any comments on, on PERS and PERS activity? Um, you know, I was thinking as you were going through this, um, the increase in the Wiener market group makes sense to me. Um, as I look on my calendar, um, those would be a large group of pigs that would have been weaned um, late February, March, even even April mm -hmm. that could be um, representing vertical transmission of PERS into the field. Um, so that makes sense to me. Okay, and so I think that those are more vertical transmission than virus moving out in the in the field uh, horizontally. I'm sure there's both. I think that I'm sure there's both, but the increased vertical transmission during that period likely. Um, increases the prevalence of lateral transmission in the grow finish population as well. Mm -hmm. Also wanted to get your thoughts and perspectives on the European PERS and, and that's because looking at the data here from the VDLs, the European virus in this country is more frequently detected in North Carolina compared to, to Midwest or other regions. So it's more more frequently detected over there. What what are your perspectives, uh, feelings about the European virus compared to North American 
which are also uh, endemic uh, over there. You know, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I've been practicing in North Carolina for eight years now, and European PERS has, has been endemic as long as I've been here and actually predates me in this region. Historically, um, European PERS is considered a, a wimpy PERS or a baby PERS, as some people have called it, um, and we've not given um, it a lot of credit in terms of pathogenicity um, here in the U.S., What's interesting that I've noticed as a practitioner, since the um, emergence of the 174 family of viruses back in 2013-2014, we saw here in North Carolina European viruses really start to pick up as well um, in this in this area, in some some systems and and a lot of groups now. Um, comment on, on seeing increased European virus. I really don't know what it means, although I will say since that emergence of the 174 family, European viruses tend to have gotten stronger here. They still are not nearly as pathogenic as your North American strains, um, but they are certainly um, more um, create higher morbidity and higher mortality than we've typically given them credit in our pigs, um, nursing piglets, and even, even nursery pigs. Still don't see a lot of um, problems with that virus in, in our finisher population, but nursing piglets um, and nursery aged pigs do tend to be um, a little more affected by the, that family of viruses than previously we've given it credit. But why it's different in North Carolina yeah. than other places, I really don't know. Um, certainly something that could, could we could look into in the future. And one other point about them, typically in my experience, I, I tend to see um, those virus um, 174 family circulation. Not always. I can mm -hmm. see them occasionally on their own cause problems. Um, but they do typically tend to coincide um, either um, a few or following a 174 circulation event. So what all that means, I really don't know, but that's just my anecdotal thoughts. Yeah, thanks for sharing those. Uh, certainly good research questions, right, to revisit that assumption that uh, the, the European virus is, like you said, uh, Wimpy or, or, or baby first compared to North American. I hear you saying, well, they may be, but they're still significant, uh, uh, significantly important in the field. And with or without perhaps uh, further investigate this ecology of, of European and North American co-infecting co or kind of one picking back and the other one, right? Absolutely. Great, great potential research questions for sure. All right. So moving on here to the next page of the report, which covers enteric coronaviruses detection by PCR, uh, PED, Delta, NTGE. And the uh, summary here, Giovanni, as I understand, is that the overall detection of those viruses are all within the forecasted levels for this time of the year, right? Yeah, that's correct. For this period of the year, we 
see this decrease in detection of this virus historically, and is occurring this year again. And the only age category that had very similar detection of April was adults of farms for PED. All the other age categories did decrease the detection of these agents during May when compared with April. Mm -hmm. as, as expected by the forecasting uh, algorithms, right? That's correct. So, Emily, what are what are your your thoughts on on uh, on those enteric coronaviruses? Your experience? What's uh, what you're seeing? What you're hearing? What you're feeling there? You know, it's interesting. Um, PED this year, for whatever reason, seems a little different. Um, I've heard some practitioners mention this in the past and, and not been able to say the same thing, but this year, personally, I've dealt with some PED breaks on farms that seems a little different than normal. Um, genetically, we've, we've looked at, at sequences of the spike protein. Um, genetically, they seem to be very, very similar to um, our original strains in the past. But something phenotypically looks and feels different. Um, we have, and maybe it's an immune, immunity piece that we don't quite understand. Um, but the herds that I've dealt with this spring, this winter and spring that have broken with PED um, are not naive. Um, obviously it is endemic in the area here where I practice. Um, and these herds, are taking longer to clean up now than they did as naive herds, which is really strange. Um, all of the tried and true um, methods, herd closures, whitewashing, bubble depopulation, those things mm -hmm. don't seem to be working as they did in the past. And, and some of these herds are dragging out much longer. We, we can't really understand why. So nothing scientific there, just a practitioner's impression that Something seems to have changed in the past year or two, whether it's immune status of, of our herds or um, the virus itself. Um, I can't quite put my finger on. Well, another, another great uh, research question, right? To revisit the immunologic uh, parameters as well as looking at the whole uh, whole virus sequence and see if there's any evidence of virus change. If not, if not, if not the virus, like you said, maybe is it the immunity or environment or some other environmental factors? Some good research follow-up questions. All right. So moving forward here with the mycoplasma page, uh, mycoplasma hyopneumonia, and its detection by by PCR over time. And uh, Giovanni, again, this page, it's uh, the mycoplasma detection is is uh, it's it's following the forecast is uh, following the forecast model, right? So it's uh, and uh, it's uh, expected to see an increase at this time of the year. That's correct, and we are starting to see some noise in the data this period of the year, where some week that goes up and the other comes down. So we're going to continue to watch these agents. How is the detection the next weeks? All right. M moving on to the Swine Disease Diagnosis Report, where it uh, 
it doesn't report PCR detection, it reports disease diagnosis as uh, concluded or assigned by each tissue cases uh, by diagnosticians. And so what this page here reports is the number of uh, disease diagnosis by physiological syndrome, respiratory disease, nervous. And uh, we do run algorithms to detect uh, any changes in the, in the disease diagnosis. Giovanni, what, what are the highlights for, for this page here for, for the disease diagnosis? Yeah, during the month of April and May, there was a signal for increased diagnosis in nervous occurring during uh, April 26th and May 2nd. And when we look for the agents that are related with the nervous system, there was not one agent that did comes out as a major uh, outcome of those weeks and being outside of the expected boundaries. So besides of that, everything is calm for this period of the year. And when we did talk with the advisory, SDIS advisory council about what are the expected issues with the disease, they say that the coronavirus, the human coronavirus uh, issue that we have now uh, during 2020 uh, lead to implement stricter biosecurity practices in the farms, including special limiting the entrance of people that are not essential for the business of the farm and extra disinfecting of surfaces and shift the people from farms is kind of the uh, staggering, more usage of protective equipment as masks and very strict procedures of the supply entering the farms with uh, cleaning and disinfecting those surfaces. Uh, they are expecting these changes that were done to decrease the incidence of disease in the farms. Yeah, so with there is more restrictions on people, uh, uh, movement, and that may lead to to less uh, opportunities for pathogen spread, right? Long story short, expectation here of a of a uh, uh, healthier pigs going forward. Uh, would you, Would you agree with that, uh, Emily? What are your perspectives here on the long term? near or, or long-term impact on swine health due to the COVID-19 related changes in people, pig flow and, and everything that surrounds there. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you see that impacting in the short-term or long-term swine health? Well, um, sure, I, I tend to agree that, you know, stricter biosecurity for human disease um, will certainly, you would like to think, um, increase our biosecurity and hygiene measures um, at the farm, which will give us a general expectation of lower disease pressure in the whole herd. Certainly would, would expect to see that as others have commented. The one thing I do think about, and it's, it's hard for me to, to balance between the two, um, unfortunately, as our industry is, is suffering in the way that we are, um, Economically, I wonder um, what people will do if they're unable to get the supplies they need for biosecurity, um, if they're unable to afford the supplies they need. Um, some people mm -hmm. um, who were using, you know, um, 
a lot of PPE such as booties or things like that may not be able to obtain those or even afford them in this economy. So I wonder if, if things like that will be um, taken off the table um, and if some of those biosecurity measures actually become, um, if we actually go backwards a little bit, I don't know that that will happen, but I do wonder and I do worry um, depending on how um, the economy continues in our in our industry um, and just the availability of supplies, how that might impact things. Um, obviously, availability of disinfectant wipes and hand sanitizers have been mm -hmm. um, have have been hit or miss in in some areas. So that that may impact things a little more than we're than we're thinking. Um, so I don't know. I think that's I think that's yet to play out. And then also you've got the you've got the other emergency um, interventions that that people may do, which might increase commingling of pigs in some locations, or um, you know some things as 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 the the supply chain continues to back up um, and not be able to um, as as the packers are less able to run at full capacity, the, the backups there the, in the supply chain, it, it, it makes you wonder how people will respond to that and, and what things they will, they will have to do in an effort to not have to euthanize pigs. So um, I think it's yet to, be, yet to be told. I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm optimistic mm -hmm. that um, we will see less disease pressure, but I think there are also some things that Unfortunately, a lot of producers may be may be forced into choosing the better of two bad decisions that that may may impact herds this fall. So I think it's yet to be seen. Complex situation, right? We'll, we will keep uh, monitoring uh, the developments here um, you know, on a weekly basis and we'll see see how it turns. I, I'm with you. I like to think uh, optimistically, but we'll keep uh keep keep prepared right keep monitoring and uh, keep eyes open uh shifting gears a little bit uh you were one of the first practitioners to share information about pcv3 so uh that was uh about about a year or more ago what are your current thoughts on the role of pcv3 in in disease Oh wow. Um yeah, my my thoughts have changed a lot on that. Um you know, I, I think back to I think 2015 was the first case I had 2014-2015. I can't remember exactly the year. Um but going from what little we knew then to the tremendous amount of information and knowledge we have now I still have learned that we have a lot more to learn about this virus. Um, there are some people who have done really wonderful work, um, Dr. Bailey Arruda, Dr. Rivera, um, and others who continue to look at this virus and we're learning that it certainly can be a pathogen. Um, there are interventions out there that um, myself and other practitioners have described using that seem to work. We don't know why, but they work. Um, and sometimes in, in practice, maybe that's all you need to, to make an impact. The, the biggest question I, I always get is, well, how do you know when you find it by PCR if it's real or not? And I think that, that depends. It's very 
herspecific, very individualistic, depending on what the expectations, the normal is for, for those herds, um, especially at a sow farm level. Um, you know, anytime you're not meeting goals and, and meeting production performance of what's expected at that farm and you can detect PCV3 at really low levels, um, a lot of people are, mm -hmm. are doing processing fluids and, and able to find that virus. But you've got to distinguish clinic, what's clinically relevant for that farm. And over years, farms that I've watched, you know, I've, I've had some farms that I've detected the virus, oh, two or two years or more before it became clinically relevant um, for that herd. So I think the, the biggest thing that I've learned is um, trying to put a baseline on um, diagnosing infection is certainly easy. Diagnosing disease is what's harder with that virus. Um, and then beyond that, knowing when to intervene. And that's Honestly, that's that becomes um, part of the practitioner's gut feel, if you will, gut reaction, anecdotal evidence. It's hard to prove with the science we have at our hands, but sometimes you just have to you have to make a call clinically um, as a veterinarian and and go for it. And in the times that I've done that, I've um, I've seen I've seen improvement. So it's out there. Okay. It's real. It's relevant. Yeah. Um, but it, it certainly takes a practitioner's work up to determine when and if and how relevant it is. And so got to further investigate, right, and beyond, like you said, beyond just a, a PCR detection and uh, can't, can't conclude much in terms of BIH causing disease just based, up, uh, based off a PCR, but got to work case by case. You certainly have seen then that's the conclusion that uh, this uh, pathogen does have the ability to cause disease and got, deserves further investigation should you detect it by PCR, right? Absolutely. All right. Well, any anything else uh, related to, to this page or to disease detection in general? Have you seen over there uh, any increased kind of challenge with a particular disease or syndrome? No. Um, I mean... Everything, everything we deal with pretty much mirrors what you've shown. Um, it's it's mm -hmm. pretty spot on. Um, I think we're, um, I'd say we're right there in the average of the, of the nation. <laughs> all right. Well, with that then, that's all uh, about we had to cover here today. We thank you once more. Uh, you, you're taking your time to to help us with this with this podcast and uh, we, with your help on trying to interpret the findings in the swine disease reporting system. Uh, thank you once again for joining us. Absolutely, thanks for having me. And that's all about we had for today. So see you uh, all next month for the report 29. Thank you. Thank you.